Welcome to episode 199 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I am an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. The purpose of CXO Talk is to bring the most innovative, visionary leaders for in-depth, meaningful conversation about issues that are important. These are people who are shaping the world. And on episode number 199 today, I'm speaking with two truly amazing women who fit all of those categories. And we're going to talk about the role of women in technology. We're going to talk about the role of the CIO and what's coming down the line. And so in no particular order, Adriana Karaboudis, who is guest number one. Andy, how are you? I am well, Michael. How are you? I'm great. And Andy, just uh, please briefly introduce yourself. Certainly. So um, I am Andy Karabudis. I'm Executive Vice President uh, for Technology, Business Solutions, and Corporate Affairs at Biogen uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Biogen is a leading in one of the oldest biotechnology companies uh, around, and we specialize in therapeutics for neurodegenerative diseases, multiple sclerosis, hemophilia, spinal muscular atrophy, and we've got a great foray um, into Alzheimer's and some great products in our pipeline. Fantastic, and we'll, we'll dive into your role and what you do in just a minute. And guest number two today is Kim Stevenson from Intel. And Kim, welcome again. You and Andy have both been guests on CXO Talk in the past. Welcome. Thanks, Michael. Uh, so as Michael said, I'm Kim Stevenson, and I am the uh, COO for uh, Intel's Client Internet of Things and Systems Architecture Group. That is a mouthful. Of course, we make it into an acronym. Um, and <clears throat> I took this job about two months ago. I keep saying last month, but um, it's the end of October. So, And I don't think I need to um, explain too much about what Intel does, but... Um, We've got a lot of new forays um, outside of our core business in um, exciting areas with artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, um, drones, uh, and all of the 5G exploration and uh, activities going on uh, that will enable services to run at that layer. So it's good. It's exciting. So let's begin with your, your both former CIOs. And maybe a good place to start is, can you share with us how you moved from being CIO to the business roles that you're now in? Yeah, I, I think I would start with, Michael, once a CIO, always a CIO. So maybe not former, <laughs> but uh, no longer in that role. Um, so it's, it's interesting um, to me that... Uh, as I move into the COO role, how much of um, the knowledge that you gain through IT, because we're, as an IT organization, you're a horizontal in the company, so you see how every process in the company executes, and with that execution, you gain deep insight into the business processes and the things that um, uh, you have opportunity to drive greater improvement in, so um, uh, this is a new role at Intel. So, um, and frankly, I was um, instrumental in crafting it because 
what we did was we outlined some of the major strategic challenges that we have going forward over the next five years or so, and how did we want to attack them? And then um, through that came uh, the need for this particular leadership role. And um, I think everybody in IT understands that if you're trying to drive any form of transformation across the company, uh, the IT knowledge and the business process knowledge is marrying those together to drive the right outcome is key. Yeah, I would. Uh, so, Michael, I would agree um, exactly with what Kim says is the CIO role, um, you know, sort of evolved and you're working across the enterprise, the recognition that it goes beyond just digitizing processes and capabilities for the company is kind of what happened to me as well. And we we started when I joined Biogen two years ago, um, you know, they had developed a vision for they wanted core capabilities, which is the traditional IT. We also wanted digital data sciences and business solutions, which is part of the title that would help us actually foray and help disrupt the life sciences and healthcare industry because there's such an opportunity for patients, payers, and providers to come together for the greater good of patients. And so the, the role evolved into something that was beyond the CIO. So I have the IT organization reporting into me. I have digital and data sciences, and then obviously uh, corporate affairs, which is a little bit separate, has communications, patient advocacy, et cetera, as a part of it. But the recognition when Biogen approached me, I was the CIO of Dell, was that we want to do something more and be something more in this space than what was traditionally IT. And I think you're seeing that evolution everywhere. So I think Kim and I will both take a bit of credit of growing beyond the role because I think we both worked very hard, if I could say that, we go back a ways. Um, but I think it's also the industry has evolved and enabled this in recognition that technology is ubiquitous. A lot of the disruptive technology that Kim just referenced is opening doors. And I truly believe, believe all companies to a greater or lesser extent are digital and technology companies now. And Michael, it might be also worth noting both Andy and I serve on corporate boards to uh, publicly held companies. And, and you see the same, what you see in the management ranks in terms of the importance of technology, the core strategic um, element that technology brings to the execution of the business plan is also a board level discussion. Um, and so you see that happening um, across industries also. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that uh, I, I, I'm really wondering about is how did you make that transition from being a CIO to being clearly a, a business person serving on the boards? And it's funny, as I say this, what I'm, I, my conscious, the, the Kim Stevenson of my conscience is saying to me, well, all all that IT is, is just another business function, that they're not separate, which uh, Kim has made very clear in the That's past. Right. But how, do, how, do, how did you and how can a CIO make that, that leap, which for many CIOs is, is a tough one? So I think what's important, we've always talked about seat at the table, earning seat at the table and things like that. I mean, for many years and, you know, that seat in the table is code for really understanding the business, what the objectives, the mission, the enablers, et cetera, are, and how do you apply technology to enable that or even to, to modify it and streamline and make it even more impactful. 
Um, the, the, so that continues to be the case. You are have to be an ardent business person. You also need to know very strongly the financials of the company and financials in general and understand how public companies work if you're on the board of a public company or part of one, but also um, you know, nonprofits if you're there as well. The bottom line is, you know, while we have a mission, for example, at Biogen, Care Deeply, Change Life, Provide Therapeutics, we have stakeholders. And those stakeholders include our shareholders, our employees, you know, our patients, our providers, payers, et cetera. And being part of that ecosystem means you have to be part of that ecosystem and really understand it and embrace it. And when technology is as important as it is, you know, having all of that and pulling it together is absolutely mandatory. That's what the ardent business person needs to be with what I call a technology backbone. Yeah, and Michael, I would say um, if people think of it like a leap, then um, that's probably, you probably won't make it across the chasm. That um, through your years of IT, what you're doing is you're building a track record of understanding the business, delivering business value projects, and you're, you move from a service provider, someone who executes um, the you know, projects and programs that a division might ask you to do a line of business executive to someone who's sitting there collaborating with the business that helps them to really think more broadly about how they could execute what's possible with technology in terms of are they trying to grab share, create new products, whatever the uh, business outcome might be, to actually someone who then sits at the table as a decision maker in what's the right strategic move, what's the right next um, uh, move for the company, not the next technology move, but the right next move for the company. Um, so, so it is, it's a, it's a, you know, it's your career um, experience that builds up that gives you that track record. So then it, when you step into that next role, it's logical. It feels normal. It feels like the next extension, just as if you moved from, you know, an applications development um, leader to, you know, a functional leader over multiple functions in IT. That seems natural after you've done those things. And so, so I think it is more about this career building and track record of experience that um, allows others to see the potential that you could bring in a different capacity. So Andy Karabudis, Kim was just saying that essentially before making that leap or, or that leap in a sense is a recognition of what you've been doing already. But, but Andy, doesn't it also require the right type of environment inside the organization more, more broadly to accept a, a CIO making that leap, no matter how good he or she might be? Absolutely. So, and some companies come to it by, you know, what comes first, a CIO that shows that, that it's more than just digitizing processes, you can do more, how do you contribute to the top line and the bottom line of, you know, a company's uh, balance sheet objectives and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but sometimes a company comes to it by seeing the disruption that's out there and what's happening goes and looks for, which was the case in my case, looks for a CIO that's shown sort of uh, progressive improvements and really taking a company along. Um, so there's a chicken and an egg, and I think it's a bit of both. You have to have a company that's mature, that recognizes just what 
technology can do. And you know, you have to have candidates that are ready, willing, and able and can do it. Um, I feel very um, lucky, to, to be honest with you, because I've crossed three industries. So I did 20 years in the auto industry. I spent four, four and a half wonderful years at Dell. It's a fantastic company. And I'm now at Biogen, and again, another fantastic company. But the common thread that's followed me along has been making sure that I can keep as current and on my game as possible on technology, as I've absolutely had to take on the challenge of learning the, those very different businesses so that I could succeed. And you know, even though Kim, for example, is in the same company, she's traversed organizations similarly. And I think you probably agree with me on that, Kim, or I hope you will anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree that um, uh, the, I always say business leaders that grow up on the business side um, really are never going to speak the language of technology. They may, they understand how they use technology, they understand what can be done, but not, not necessarily understand how do you make that come to life. And, and technology people, we know how to make things come to life, like deliver the solutions that can create that value. And we tend to have to learn to speak the language of business and to prioritize the business outcome over the the specific technology choice or selection or implementation date, whatever those you know, boundary conditions that we put on ourselves. And because we learn both and we understand the business outcome that we're trying to drive, it actually puts an IT leader, when you compare a business leader, now you're trying to make a decision, what's the next person that I'm gonna put in this role that's gonna drive the company to the next level? Am I gonna put someone that understands one dimension or I'm going to put someone in the role that understands both dimensions. Right. And, and that's why I think it's so um, fortunate. We're fortunate as IT leaders now in this, this sort of next era of what, where technology is going to take companies, because we had to learn the business language to be able to effectively execute our IT mission. Um, business leaders have never had to do that until now, and, and that's a challenge for many of them. And, and, and refers, Michael, to some of the resistance factors that you sometimes find in companies um, about you know, the risk associated with adopting new technology. And we have a question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter who asks, well, you're saying that the tech folks need to understand business, but Kim, hearkening to what you were just talking about, uh, what about the need for business folks to have a better understanding of technology? So I'll jump in on that one. Uh, absolutely. But it's the technologists, one of the key roles of the technologist lead person's job to help them understand, to help them understand the art of the possible with new and emerging technologies and how it can disrupt the business or enable the business. And so the you know, third dimension besides understanding technology and the core business is communication. Communication for a technologist is hugely important. And while I don't wanna take the burden off of the business people to really you know, understand technology, et cetera, we need to make sure that we're communicating well enough and not just communicating what is SOA and what are services and you know, what is uh, machine learning, but how those things apply to what is core and paramount to the business. So I think that's a big role that we have to play. And yes, the business does need to understand technology. 
What about, um, you mentioned AI machine learning. That's such an interesting topic, and it's almost becoming a, a kind of buzzword now. And you're both in, in organizations that are exploring all of these technologies. And so maybe would you talk a little bit about AI machine learning and some of these new technologies and the impact on your business and how you're thinking about these things? Yeah, I'll start on that. So um, for uh, for me, this is a really, so AI has been a long time coming and, and think of the way I think about it is AI is the umbrella for things like machine learning, deep learning, cognitive cognitive computing, ambient computing, all of that sort of fits into um, the AI umbrella. And, um, and you're already seeing really, really interesting solutions come into play, you know, sort of the driverless, you know, self-driving cars is probably the most, but, but even um, the drone, uh, we've got this really cool, think of it as a demo, but, you know, 150 drones fly up in the air in unison, right? And we spell out the Intel logo and we do interesting things with the drones, but, but take that to the next step where you might be using it for a search and rescue mission, right? Where if you had 150 drones, the area you could scan for search and rescue, you know, is multiplied by, you know, 150 times and you can save lives that way. If you're doing, um, track inspections for um, uh, rail railroad tracks. And so, so there's a lot of really interesting things that have to come into play. And this machine learning, deep learning helps you and the artificial intelligence helps you actually to make decisions in faster time with more accuracy um, that you, know, you just wouldn't be able to do without that. Um, so, so to me, it's really exciting um, for, and, and it's a huge benefit for Intel's business because the more data we're storing, the more compute we're, we're processing, whether it's at the edge or back in the data center, um, those are all good things for Intel's business. So, um, so for us, you know, to accelerate that momentum would be a really good um, option. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Kim, and it's multidimensional. I mean, it was interesting for for my for my industry for life sciences. If you think about the plethora of data to bring together, not just in analytics and that, but do deep mining and really learn from to try to penetrate, you know, uh, quicker, quick, more quickly getting to therapeutics for diseases. There's thousands of diseases out there for which, you know, biologically we have uh, therapies for about 500. You know, the opportunity is tremendous for that data mining and machine learning and opportunities to drive various variables together. But interestingly enough, Michael, and Kim and I were just on a string over the weekend, there's so many dimensions to it because as with evolution of technology and evolution of various industries, you know, the new car, you had to develop roads, you had to develop rules of the road. Machine learning brings with it, you know, some interesting moral, ethical, um, you know, things that we have to get in place to really be able to manage as the advent of it. As always, companies like Intel are providing better, faster compute power. We have more storage, more of everything. Companies like Dell and, and the rest are doing that. We need to make sure the technology really doesn't become the long pole in the tents. Uh, we need to make sure that the ethical issues and all of that comes along with it. So it's a really interesting topic, and uh, and Kim and I are heavily into it. 
So when you uh, so when you talk about or think about some of the ethical issues, can you uh, give us some examples of the kinds of potential issues that come up? So look, it, by definition, machine learning, right, will take you for to where you have now created quote unquote intelligent devices that learn more and more and will take actions on things. If we don't have um, rules of the road, I'll call it at a very tactical level around how we're developing the, these things, what are we doing? You know, think about, I'll draw an analogy. Guns, you know, uh, are used for good reasons. Guns can also be used for bad reasons. Atomic bombs unchecked, same sort of thing. We have to make sure that what we're developing, what we're programming, has morals, ethics, integrity baked into the thought processes behind them, or you know something that could be very good could turn into something that could be detrimental for people. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, decisions you know that are made, and the easy ones to talk about are life and death death decisions. But there's there's much many nuances to it. But if you're in a life and death decision today, so if I'm, um, you know, uh, driving a, a car today and there's, you know, it's clear there's going to be an accident, then I make a decision. Do I want to swerve right or do I want to swerve left um, or do I want to go straight? Um, and then so now you put that and you say, OK, now the machine learning algorithm is going to make that decision because it's a self-driving car. And so then what do you tell it to do when in front of you? is you know your clear death right to the right of you is i always say you know my grandmother and to the left of you is you know my children which which decision is the machine going to make um and you could take that to a military application you you know you can take that um you know drug running and supply chain automation i mean there's just a lot of things that could go wrong and but I'm a firm believer that technology shouldn't slow down ever for the fear that someone might do something bad with it. Um, we are active um, in lobbying and discussing with Congress and legislative commu communities about what, you know, what um, legislation should be in place. Um, no, no clear answers at this point, but but you take that ethical responsibility and that integrity responsibility with the technology advancement, and then you have to take it to the legislative slide. In fact, that's how we got airbags in cars, right? Um, so so I wouldn't slow down, um, but I said the like Andy said it was really good that don't make technology the long pole in the tent, think this thing through holistically to the whole solution so that legislation will be there when you wanna introduce the new technology. Andy, do you think about uh, AI machine learning technologies in a, in a different way than you would traditional uh, software development or drug research? So, I mean, as with, with all evolving technology, you, you have to think about what is it bringing more to the table? What can you do with it, et cetera? And for me, I do think about it diff differently. I think about it as, you know, data mining on steroids and really coming up with how do we get the vast amount 
of data that's out there, pull it back in, be able to match it, find correlations, find causations, and then go on to a next level of learning without sounding uh, too redundant, and really taking that to help disrupt. If you look at our industry, you know, developing a therapeutic takes, could take 12 years. And when you have debilitating diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer and things like that, anything you can do where you can go in silico and you can learn, use machine learning techniques, artificial intelligence techniques, um, you know, deep analytics and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, we, we are following it with a vengeance and we do treat it differently because it's providing new capability to the table. And it can help solve, you know, help solve uh, bigger problems for us. Well, clearly, this is this is a very exciting point, and um, certainly, it seems drug development, and of course, all the things that Intel is doing. How, how, uh, to what extent are you embracing AI and machine learning? I'm sure you both have organizations and folks developed uh, devoted to this, but. Where are we in the sort of explosion, in, in the life cycle of the explosion of this? So, Michael, I wish I could tell you, you know, that we are really far along the path, et cetera. I think we're treading very carefully. I think we've got a great foundation in place uh, here at Biogen. Um, we are, I would say, if you wanted a scale of one to 10, we're probably in the two to three range on what the, the art of the possible is. And probably 10 keeps going further and further away from us because as things progress, as the, you know, the technology and the learnings get better and better, um, we have a loftier goal to strive for. Yeah, and, and I would say, Michael, you, you've seen Intel announce products this year that are tuned for machine learning, deep learning, both training and scoring. So we're, we're all in from a business uh, point of view, and um, you'll continue to see advancements there. I would say, though, you know, that we're still, even though there's been sort of this long buildup to it, because we've been doing AI for a, a long time in different flavors, um, we are still in the very, very early days um, where, you know, industry standards haven't been set yet, um, legislation still, the technology is evolving very, very rapidly, all with really great performance improvements. Um, but we have, you know, libraries being developed, et cetera. And um, so, so we're still at the early phase. And I think the way this plays out is you start to see um, component capabilities come in for autonomous function. Um, the whole car doesn't go autonomous in, in the 2016-17, I guess, model year, right? But things do, you see the technology come out every generation. Um, and that's what's so exciting. And so, uh, but, but we've got a good decade ahead of us before this fully comes into play. And there's going to be lots of coexistence with existing technology and new technology, and they're going to have to work well together. Yeah. I'm involved with the, uh, the IEEE, which has a major initiative going on looking at the ethical implications of AI and autonomous systems. I actually co-chair one of, one, of one of the groups with David Bray who's uh, currently CIO of 
the FCC. And uh, just, just any thoughts on uh, tensions that, that may ultimately come up between the desire of, of people who are, who are probably fearful, and in some cases with good reason, to uh, regulate AI and the desires of developers to have unfettered forward motion. So any, any thought on that tension at all? So I actually think developers uh, sort of welcome the um, what I'll call standards and, and the rules of the road that the IEEE could put in place or other organizations. Great developers actually like to do good. They like to deliver great capabilities. They like to provide, you know, especially around what can we learn? How can we apply it? Again, back to, you know, my world around to do good for patients. And so I think they welcome it. They actually want to be part of the conversation. That's the key thing. Instead of having something just come down, it's how do they become part of the conversation and provide their insights on what would be good ethical programming, good ethical machine learning, mining, et cetera, and what we do with it. You will always have the hackers. You will always have you know, people that don't. But the mainstream, I think, is a very proud cadre of people that want to be proud of it. So I really don't see it as a tension. I just hope that the IEEE is bringing in good people and, and knowing them as I do, I think they probably are to help with that endeavor. Yeah, I, I would say, Michael, to prove Andy's point. So we have at Intel, we have a cloud for good initiative. Um, and one of the first uh, implementations is what we call our cancer cloud. And so it takes um, DNA sequencing information um, to actually give sort of better diagnosis and um, uh, treatment plans. And one of the things that we've done, because, you know, data is always the key to these kinds of initiatives, is that, you know, we've offered a benefit to Intel employees and their families if, if you have cancer, that um, we will pay for your DNA sequence um, and so that it can give you to a better, um, uh, you know, diagnosis and treatment plan. Um, so the so that all sounds wonderful, right? Um, and be, but because healthcare is done on a state by state basis, you know, we started in Oregon, so that's available in Oregon, and now we have to work through um, other states to get the same kind of benefit available in other states, um, and then we will, you know, have to build data sets that are appropriate for that state. And so, so when I said it's sort of going to take a decade. It, it's because of those kinds of things. And that's um, just a reality that you face and you have to work within the system. Um, and you know what? I never am afraid of tension. If there is tension, that usually leads to a better dialogue and gets us to a better answer. If there were no tension, I don't think we would be um, as creative and innovative in the solutions that we bring together um, as uh, technologists. So, so I applaud the tension and um, would hopefully you and David will do this, but would you know request that you have a diverse set of people, you know, global representation, um, industry-wide representation, um, so that we get to answers that work, you know, um, across a global economy. Well, actually, I, I 
can't speak for the IEEE, but I can tell you this, this large initiative has global representation, uh, has people from all different sectors, and certainly on the, the committee that David and I co-chair, we include policymakers and from the government, uh, independent think tanks, and from uh, private industry, because absolutely we agree that, that the, you need this balanced perspective that includes these multiple points of view. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear. That's great to hear, Michael. So let's go on to another topic in our last uh, 15 minutes of this show. And let's talk about, and I'm, I'm cringing before I say it, let's talk about women in technology. So, okay. So either one of you can start and beat me down right from there. Yeah. What do you want to, what do you want to talk about relative to women? And there's a lot of us there. We're hoping there'll be more, Michael. Uh, well, let's talk about the fact that there are a lot, a lot of women there and hoping that there will be more. A study, Accenture recently came out with a study. They were partnering with Girls Who Code. And USA Today had a, a provocative headline that said something to the effect of, if we're not careful, the number of women in technology will actually decline between now and the year 2025. And as Kim pointed out earlier when we were talking, well, that's, you know, a, a, a attention-grabbing headline. But still, there are concerns, and, yeah. and it's not a panacea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, um... Let's. I always say you gotta, this. We have to reframe this. When people start with women in tech, it's like women have a problem. And um, the, the broader issue is how do we make the technology industry and profession an inclusive profession that includes people of all sorts of different backgrounds and different genders and cultures, the whole bit, um, because. You know, I'll go back to, you know, uh, my statement. It's, you know, it's, there are no IT projects. They're all business projects, right? There are no teams that that um, can be sort of of a unilateral mindset. You need diverse experience, diverse perspectives, right? Um, and I can give you lots of examples where products were developed um, by a homogeneous team that didn't represent the customer that product was for, and it failed in the marketplace. Yet when, you know, um, I'll go back as early as in the early 2000s, Ford put a set of women engineers on the Ford Taurus, right? And it became the highest selling car because they had a different need understanding of their customer. Um, at Intel, we were working on some wearables and um, some of them are high-end fashion bracelets. Well, who's going to wear the fashion bracelet? Women. And so they were thinking about where on this bracelet would you put the USB charging port? And one of the women on the team said, well, I wouldn't want to plug it in anyway, because at night when I, I take off my jewelry, I lay it on my dresser. Why not create a wireless charging bowl or a wireless pad that I could just set it on? And then you're not destroying the beauty of the bracelet with a plug for USB charging. And so there's just a few examples of where diverse members of the team that represent your constituency and your customer base actually get you to a better outcome. 
And so, so when I think about where technology is going, I, I think the, the world demographics are changing. Um, you know, by 2050 in the United States, there will be no racial or ethnic majority. We will be that much of a blended community. And so that why wouldn't you have blended teams? And um, I'm pretty proud of what we've done at Intel. I'd say it's a journey. We're, we're partway on the journey, but you know, we set in place um, very clear objectives about our hiring, retention, and progression of our um, diverse population. And, uh, and we're doing a great job. We're not um, there yet, but I, I'll tell you our hiring has been, we've reported it for the last two years is, you know, um, over 40% diverse employees. And that tells you the talent is available. You may have to look in different places. You may have to change your interview teams. You may have to have some criteria around how you um, select people, but um, the talent is available and we haven't lowered our standards one bit. In fact, we increase our standards every year because of the rate and pace of technology change. So I, uh, I again agree agree with Kim. I think she said it extremely well. The conversation has to become more robust. Um, we do still have less women in technology than uh, we'd all like. We'd like to see it, you know, be more 50-50, et cetera. The conversation has to be more robust around uh, not just talking about women in technology for the sake of getting more women in technology, but what are the things that we need to do to get the results we need? Part of it is great diversity programs, like I know Intel has and I know Biogen has. Um, Part of it is coming together in women in technology forums, not talking so much about the challenge of the results, but talking about the technology. And I'm being a little harsh here because there have been a lot of situations where I've been asked to speak, I know Kim's been asked to speak as well, and it's how do we get more women? How do we do, do that? And that's a good agenda topic, but it shouldn't be the whole discussion. The discussion should be, what are we doing as women to really drive technology forward? What are we doing to be at the front end of that curve? What are we doing, for example, like Michigan Council for Women in Technology, which I was very proud to be part of when I was back in Michigan, to bring a, um, a feeder pool to fruition and really start driving that. And again, I'll be a little harsh and I hope my uh, female colleagues will forgive, forgive me, little less ruminating about it and a little bit more of really continuing the great work that we've started to drive it forward and be the poster people for these great implementations and great things that we've done. So I'm being a little edgy here. I might get a little criticism for it, but I think Kim and I are saying the same thing. And yep. we shared a bottle of wine and talked about that actually. We did, we did not too long ago. And you know, Michael, the, the other thing that I get asked a lot um, so men have to help, right? I would not be here in my position today without having been mentored and supported by a number of men throughout my career. Um, and um, so there, there's a role for, for women's growth in this uh, challenge and that we're facing, um, but there's a role for men too. Male advocacy is really important. And um, so to the extent that all of the audience today, you know, um, you know, say, if you're thinking, what is it, what can I do, right? Then I would tell you that it's really easy, right? Sponsor um, 
uh, a woman, you know, that's midway through her career, find a young woman and help encourage and keep her in technology, right? And then ask them to do the same thing for two other women. And so a couple small steps makes a huge impact when you start getting that multiplication factor. You both are, excuse me, you both are truly the uh, poster examples of women with extraordinary careers because you've, you've both come up uh, through being CIOs, obviously a very male-dominated profession focused on tech, and you have now moved into broader business roles. We, we hear about the seat at the table. I mean, you're both members of uh, company boards. And so what did what did you each do to make this happen? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Worked hard. Um, you know, you know, when I think about um, uh, things that I would say, maybe I did differently than would be considered typically female, if, if that's a good way to think about it, you know, as a differentiator um, kind of thing. Um, I definitely networked with a purpose and still do, right? I network with people who I think can help me, not just people who I like. Um, and often women fall into that category that we, we network with people we like. We're so busy. So you use your um, uh, relationship time that we need that, by the way, for women, relationship time fuels us. It, it, it helps make us whole. Um, so, we, so you tend to then network with people that you like. And in business, you know, frankly, um, liking somebody isn't the key criteria, right? Is it's can they help you get done what you need to get done? Can they help you build a partner ecosystem? Can they help you with your innovation agenda? And um, so, again, I think that sounds a little bit um, harsh, but I do think that that's a differentiator. And I think I've always done that. I've I've networked with people that I believe had a shared view. Um, and we're in it to help one another, sort of looking for that win-win. Um, whether I like them personally or not was not a criteria at the beginning. I hope through the developing of a relationship that I like them as people at the end, but, but it isn't always the case, and, and that for me is okay. You know, for me, for me, uh, it's had to, the way um, the the simplest thing that's helped me do it is to overcome that little voice inside that says not good enough, uh, don't have the qualifications, etc. We've all heard the story of you put a job description in front of a male candidate and ask them, do you think you could do it? And they say, yeah, absolutely. And you know, we females do have that little voice inside that says, oh, I haven't done this. I don't have experience. I've never been on a board. I've never sat in a boardroom, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, it's been just uh, kind of pushing that voice back and saying, yeah, I can do it. And it just takes a little more work to figure out how to make myself comfortable with it as I build the capabilities needed in this description kind of thing. And that's the thing that I tell uh, young women, when I'm mentoring them about the only thing that gets in your way isn't, you know, people don't like you, they're not promoting you, there's a glass ceiling, though some of those things could be very real. But the thing that you can control and overcome is that voice inside you that says, I don't think I can do it. 
And uh, yeah, certainly not just women, but I know it's more so with especially young girls, you know, aspiring to do things that are that appear challenging. And I think we need to to move on with that. The second thing is I stopped beating myself up for not having the demeanor that a lot of people expect of me. I am uh, passionate. Uh, I can be emotional. And, you know, I would beat myself up driving home thinking, oh, was I a little too emotional or a little too passionate? And once I put that thing aside and started focusing on, did I deliver what we needed to do? And maybe how can I do it better? But the results were it. I got out of my own way. And we women need to get out of our own way. Again, being a little harsh, a little edgy. I hope people forgive me, and, but sort of embrace that and take it. I think it's really important and it's what's helped me. Yeah, I would say, so being your authentic self um, is a great attribute of, for any leader. And so if that means you're a little bit more passionate or you're prone to tears, so what? It's who you are. But when if you have to cover, that's, that's an official social scientist term, cover and try to pretend that you're somebody that you're not, all your energy goes into covering instead of actually solving the problem. And so... I've been called a lot of things in my career. Some of them have been positive, but some of them haven't been. Um, and, but frequently, um, and, and actually this has been true for a long time, people will say I'm intimidating. And, um, and for a long time that bothered me um, because I, what they think is intimidating is what I, when I look in the mirror, I see it as passion. I just want to get something done. And I finally just decided to own it. Right. So, yes, I am a little intimidating, but you know what? That's who I am. And, you know, you have to just sort of own it. And not, none of us are perfect, men nor women. We have our all have our quirks. But if you can stay authentic and open up in that way, um, I think you can be a lot more effective. Wow, this is uh, really just amazing hearing hearing you both talk. We only have a few minutes left. What advice or recommendations do you have for organizations that want to do more? Stop thinking about the IT organization, the CIO, uh, the digital data organizations uh, in the traditional sense of they are digitizing processes and capabilities and start thinking like many companies already do, how to take the, the person, the organization, the technologies available and put the challenge to them to how will they help contribute or completely change what the company should do in order to be more innovative and really try, drive top line and bottom line growth. Yeah, and I would say I'll take the team aspect of it. You know, make your goal to build high-performance teams. Um, most companies can buy the technology that they need. What you really want is a high-performance team. I believe that is going to be made up of a diverse population that represents the customer base that you are going after today and the customer base that you are going after in the future. Um, and then, you know, you'll, you'll be able to partner with great technology companies across the board to help bring the technology to life. But you need that high performance team um, that really will implement it because in the end, technology is a people business. Yep. Boy, I wish that we had a lot more time because there's so much to talk about. But maybe we can, let's finish up by asking each of you. 
what advice can you offer to CIOs? I mean, you've both been there and done that in the past, and so you have a very broad perspective. And so what advice do you have for a CIO who wants to be just great at what she or he does? Andy, how about, how about you? So um, it's a little bit of what we said earlier on, I'll emphasize it, Michael, which is uh, continue to not just under, be an expert in technology and continue not to just understand your business, but think about, uh, imagine a day when, or imagine a life of around your business where you're actually futuring and you're thinking a couple steps ahead the days of let's go see what the business needs or even let me look at the mission and vision of the company and see how i can support it which is very important but that third step of imagine a world where and how could that what can i do to actually bring and modify what could help the company to the table as a leader versus a peer or a follower if you will and Kim, um, your, your, your thoughts. Yeah, I would say um, company strategy first. Are you executing the company strategy and you're bringing the technology pillar into the company strategy? Um, and part of what the unique ability that you have in IT is to help make those company trade-offs. So the strategy is a great plan, but in execution, you have to make a trade-off. Um, across business units, within product portfolios, you name it. Um, and often you will bring a unique perspective to help make those trade-offs that get us to the best uh, strategy. And so um, that's a, it's a business recommendation, not necessarily a technology recommendation, but it's so key to being able to set yourself apart from the business leaders who get paid on their P maximizing their P&L um, and having that corporate perspective and helping you execute the strategy, I think, is is key. Um, and then just never forget that, you know, if you try to approach it from being in the seat of the business leader, I think that you are able to relate better to the challenges that they have and help work through those knot holes that, you know, inevitably come up. Wow. Well, I am going to have to go back and listen to this conversation because, this has just been so rich, and, and I want to express such a grateful appreciation to Kim Stevenson from Intel and Andy Karaboudis from, from, Biogen, uh, th from Biogen. Thank you both so very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Michael. You have been watching episode number 199 of CXO Talk, and I also want to thank Livestream because those guys provide our video infrastructure and they're breathtakingly good and they make CXO Talk possible. And so live stream, if you're out there, thank you guys so much. And I hope that everybody, you will join us again on Friday when we are going to be talking with the CIO of Brooks Brothers. Started a long time ago and we're going to hear about their digital transformation. Thanks everybody. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.